We've been studying the last couple services, the last days of Jesus's life. And on Friday, we studied the crucifixion, the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, if this were anybody else other than Jesus, that would be the end of our study of his life. Most people's lives end with their death. Jesus's did not. Today is Resurrection Sunday. As the angel said in Matthew 28, 6, he is not here for he is risen. Jesus was crucified and buried on Friday. He lay in the tomb all day Saturday, which was the Sabbath, which is why they didn't come and embalm his body. But when they tried to come and do that on Sunday morning, the stone had been rolled away. The Roman guard had run away because the stone had been rolled away and they knew that they were responsible for that. And the body was gone. An angel came and told them he was alive, that he would appear to them soon. And that evening, as they're discussing all this stuff, the Lord appeared to the disciples for the first time. And we know from the scripture, he would appear to them over 40 days, multiple times. The Lord would appear to them after his resurrection. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Everything depends upon the resurrection. Believing it is not optional. Because Jesus has returned from the grave, we know that his sacrifice for our sake has been accepted. He's able to deliver us from the grave too. If you're worshiping somebody who couldn't even defeat the grave for themselves, what makes you think he's going to defeat the grave for you? But we believe that Jesus has overcome the grave and therefore we will as well. Romans 6, 8 says, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And that is the source and the assurance of our joy as believers. But we know that one of the Lord's disciples did not believe at first. Poor Thomas has been stuck because of these verses forever with the title of Doubting Thomas. His story is really a very hard one. It's a tragic story, but it has a happy ending, which is good news for us because we are in a very similar situation to the Apostle Thomas. And we too have a hard time believing in things that we have not seen. So let's read this story together in John 20 verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So when Jesus first appeared to his disciples in the preceding verses, Thomas was not with them. Does not explain why. There could be any number of reasons, but I think that it is pretty clear that this was providential. The Lord had a lesson that Thomas needed to learn before he was ready to take up his ministry as one of the 12 apostles. Because Thomas not only disbelieved the other apostles, he said he would never believe unless he had absolute, indisputable proof that he had handled with his own hands. Thomas had, as many of the other disciples did, a nickname. We see in this passage, his nickname was Didymus, which was Greek for twin. 
The apostles were like any other group of young men. They had nicknames for one another and they called him the twin. Well, we have another nickname for him, which is Doubting Thomas. We only see him two other times in the Bible other than in the lists of the apostles. And both of them are in the book of John. The first time we saw him speaking is in John eleven sixteen, when Jesus said, we're going to Lazarus and we're going to raise him from the dead. He said, let us go also that we may die with him. That was Thomas. <laughs> Thomas said, well, if he's going to go die, we might as well go die too. In John 14, 5, during the last supper, Jesus told them he was going away. And he said, and you know where I'm going. And Lord, said Thomas, interrupting, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And that's followed by that immortal verse, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, these two stories, they don't tell us much. But it's interesting to me that all three of the stories with Thomas are examples of skepticism. He didn't believe that Jesus would be able to go that close to Jerusalem to help Lazarus and yet escape being arrested. And he was not willing to take something Jesus said on faith, you know the way. He said, no, 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 I want, I want GPS, I want coordinates, I want to know where you're going. Unless he had the whole plan, he had a hard time believing. Maybe you can sympathize with that. We are in a similar position to Thomas the Apostle. We have not seen the risen Jesus. All we have, like he did, is the word of the apostles, the testimony of those who did see him. That's all we have. And for this reason, we can see ourselves in him. And like him, we are being asked to take something wonderful on faith alone. At the present time where we live, doubt is considered to be a virtue. Question everything, scream the bumper stickers and the YouTubers and everybody else. That term skeptic has been elevated to almost mean intellectual. If you're a skeptic, oh, he's a very intellectual man. I maybe would say smarty pants anyway. Intellectual might not be right. And listen, I suppose there might be an appropriate place for that sentiment, that we got to question everything. Okay, fine. But it's hardly a Christian sentiment. That's hardly a biblical one. Our religion is built upon faith. In fact, our religion is the only one that could properly be called a faith. Isn't that interesting that we refer to the Islamic faith or the Jewish faith or the Buddhist faith? They, they don't really make a big deal about faith. That's our thing. <laughs> we believe in something that we have not seen. We have faith. We are saved by faith. And so all these people that grew up in a Christian culture assume that all religions are the same. And so they call them all faiths. That's just a little rabbit trail, but just something worth thinking about. But there are even Christian writers and artists and pastors who have encouraged the church in their doubts. There are church meetings. I've read about this. They exist only to give people in the church a chance to air their doubts. They say, let's get together and everybody can share something about the faith that they don't believe or that they have a hard time understanding. And now that might be a good thing if it was followed up by the pastor saying, okay, great. Let me help you understand. But these meetings will say, no answers allowed. We're just going to acknowledge our doubts and make us feel better that we don't have all the answers. Listen, if that's not a scheme cooked up by the devil, I don't know what is. Everybody give all your questions and no one's allowed to give answers. That's not biblical. And I would never be so foolish as to doubt the existence of doubts and questions. We have questions about the existence of God, the creation of the world, the inerrancy of scripture, the resurrection, and more. These are legitimate questions for us to ponder. But if we act just like Thomas... And we demand that every question be independently verified through the scientific method unless I put my finger in the wounds and I won't believe. We become just like the world. Doubt is not a symbol of Christian maturity. 
We are to work through our doubts by the words of Scripture, by the wisdom of other Christians, and the inner quickening of God's Holy Spirit. What we are called to is faith. And faith in what has already been proven is no faith at all. As we see in this story, choosing to hold on to your skepticism in the face of Christ is foolishness. Doubt leads only to misery, but simple faith leads to liberty. Imagine how deflated these other apostles must have been when Thomas didn't believe. All their joy and all their exuberance that they had, it would have just kind of passed away out of the room for a while. For a while. I don't think they would have been able to hold it in. So probably what happened is that the apostles and the women that were with them probably spend the next week excited and wondering, oh, is he going to come back? Is he going to appear again? Meanwhile, Thomas is off in the corner, ignoring all the goings on. He's just kind of, okay, yeah, you people do your thing. I'm going to make sure dinner's ready. I'll keep a lookout for the Jews when they come. This is the first thing I want us to see. We've got three things I want to go through. Number one is the misery of doubt. Thomas, were he alive today, would be applauded as the only rational disciple, wouldn't he? He refused to believe anything unless it had been sufficiently demonstrated to him. That right there should give the lie to the idea that the disciples were a bunch of credulous dopes who just believed whatever was told them. You got Thomas right here. But I want you to notice, while we might say, oh, Thomas was a very rational man. You look at this. He's the most miserable man in this group of people. At any moment, he could have changed his entire demeanor and entered into the same joy that Peter had and Andrew had and Philip had, but his doubts kept him out. The door was right there before him, but the key to open it was belief, not evidence. When Jesus had come to the disciples before, twice, he had said to them, peace be with you. Thomas was the only one that did not have the peace of Jesus. Not because he didn't see him, but because he didn't believe. Even in these verses, when Jesus comes again and the third time says, peace be with you, Thomas cannot receive that peace until he has cried out to Jesus in faith. Doubt leads only to misery and an inability to accept the peace of God. Why is this so? Why is that the case? There's no deficiency with God, obviously. Jesus Christ, according to Isaiah 9, 6, is the Prince of Peace. Philippians 4, 7 says the peace of God surpasses all understanding. The problem is not with God. The disconnect is with us. Isaiah 26, 3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Because he trusts in you. We must trust in God and keep our minds stayed on him. If you do not rest your mind on the truth of God and all that he has taught you, there is no peace left for you. There's only turmoil. And that's not somehow because your faith makes it real. All right? It's real on its own. God is real. Jesus is real. He is risen whether you believe it or not. But if you isolate yourself from that truth and you begin to make demands of God before you will acknowledge his authority, your heart will have no access to the blessings that could be yours through faith. You stand on the outside demanding that God show his work. Then you're not going to experience the peace of God. Power in the spirit is based on faith. The miracles of Jesus were in proportion to the faith of the people. Salvation itself is received by faith. Faith in the truth. What is true about God is immensely powerful. I mean, think about this. The very idea of the Son of God crucified and risen from the dead, if that's true, there is some incredible power going on here. Power to conquer death. 
When we believe, we move out of the way and we allow God to do the work. Faith lifts up the sluice gate for the power of God to rush out. Faith has no power on its own, don't get me wrong. If I believe hard enough, then it'll happen. No, faith has no power, but it is the valve that turns to release what's already in the tank, which is the truth about God and the risen Jesus. Because there is such power in faith, the devil works to undermine faith in the truth. The opposite of the truth is what? A lie. And so lies are the devil's primary weapon. John 8, Jesus called the devil a liar and the father of lies. If God's people believe a lie, they are powerless because the effectual power of God is released through faith. And if Satan cannot get someone to believe an outright lie, instead he will introduce doubts into the truth. That's the first step. Do you remember the Garden of Eden when the serpent was tempting Eve? The first thing he said was not, eat that fruit. He said in Genesis 3, 1, did God actually say, do not eat of the tree of the garden? Did he really say that? And then he opens up a conversation with Eve. And then he moves in Genesis 3, verse 4 to say, you will not die. Now he's lying. Before he was introducing questions, then when the questions had opened Eve up to the possibility of something different, he introduces the lie and she believed it. Those are Satan's devices. Since there is power in belief, he works to undermine belief through doubt so that he can then introduce his lies. Let me give an example. Let's say the devil wanted to convince people that Jesus is not God. Let's say that was his goal. If he comes to the Christians and he immediately says, the deity of Christ is a lie, no one's going to believe that. So what does he do? He comes in and he whispers in someone's ear, does the Bible really say that Jesus is God? Now that's a silly question. Of course it does. Obviously it does. It says it in this passage today. But there are people who have made academic careers out of asking that question. Did the Bible really say that Jesus is God? And these unwitting instruments of the devil stir up a bunch of questions by publishing books and giving lectures and going on TV. And by investing so much time into it, it starts to give it credibility. Now, Christians begin to sense that this is growing. So what do they do? The apologists and the theologians move in and they begin to demonstrate, uh, yeah, in fact, the Bible does say that Jesus is God. And then a debate ensues. This is where the devil brings in another question, another lie. He begins to whisper to unsuspecting souls, they wouldn't be having such a big debate if there wasn't something there. Why are the Christians so worried? What are they trying to hide from you? And they say, because there's an argument, that itself is evidence that Jesus did not claim to be God. The secular universities begin to teach that. They say, oh, it's really not a settled question anymore. And then some Christians begin to worry. What if it's not true? What if Jesus didn't claim to be God? And the whisper comes in again. What if tomorrow some researcher definitively proves that Jesus never claimed to be God? Then what? People begin to panic. And some fearful, maybe well-meaning pastor says things like, oh, it doesn't matter if he said he was God or not. All that matters is that his teachings are true. And he writes a book and he gains traction. And the Christians think, oh, good. We've, we've managed to kind of sidestep this whole thing and we can, we can keep the faith the same. But now you've got a church that has to accept both views, people who believe in the deity of Christ and people who don't. And so we become afraid to make definitive statements. And so the deity of Christ slips out of the preaching and it slips out of the worship songs. And then another generation arises and they didn't see that debate happen. And they are told up front that it doesn't matter if they believe Jesus is God or not. 
Then they go to school and they hear their professors saying, Jesus never claimed to be God. It's, it's a settled academic question from a generation ago. So then these kids shrug their shoulders and say, well, then what am I bothering with this for? If Jesus didn't claim to be God, why would I believe that he was God? And if he didn't claim to be God, what's the point of the church? And then out they go. In just a few short chess moves, Satan is able to rip out a fundamental plank of the Christian faith. Do you see that pattern? That's just a thought experiment, okay? I, I, I just thought that through and, and presented it as an example. But can't you see that exact thing in various stages today? The existence of God, the inerrancy of scripture, creation, the resurrection, all of them are dead on the road that began with doubts and questions. Not sincere questions, lying questions from the devil. This is why you have to deal with your doubts according to scripture, guys. Doubts never keep their place. Doubts always overflow their banks. Faithlessness is a flood. It goes over the river. You think, oh, I can keep this one thing in place. No, it's going to overflow. You cannot allow your doubts about the resurrection or anything else to go unchallenged in your mind. It's not good to claim to be a skeptic and hold no definitive position on all the important questions. If you do that, you'll be carried away in the flood of faithfulness and you will end up washed up and miserable. Doubts leave you miserable. You cannot fully enter into the joy of the Lord when you're full of doubt because your faith is weak. Sometimes it's intentionally weak and boastfully weak. I had a friend, not really a friend, a kid I sat next to in seminary who was really proud of the fact that he would say, I don't accept anything that I'm told. I test everything. I grew up hearing that Jesus was the son of God, but I had to find that out for myself. I'm not just going to take what anybody told me. I, I would not be surprised one little bit if that guy's faith has been totally shipwrecked somewhere along the line. Because you have no foundation. You're proud of the fact that you have no foundation. All the wonderful truths of the Bible are washed away and you end up believing in nothing. And you're left like Thomas, facing the misery of your life with nothing to hold on to. I'll bet Thomas was growing bitter towards those other disciples. He resented them because they believed when he didn't. And he was probably jealous of their joy. But if he were to allow himself to envy them too much, then he would start to slip back towards belief. He's like, maybe there's something to this and he can't allow himself go there. So he hardens himself and he becomes bitter and bitterness is a truly miserable place to be. Why do you think atheists and skeptics are the most vicious opponents of Christianity? Why do they care? If we believe in Jesus, why do they care? If none of it's real, apparently, then what difference does it make if we show up on Sundays and sing some songs and talk about a book that they've never read before? If none of it's real, why bother mocking those who believe? Because they are left to view the world and all of its horrors and all of its uncertainties with none of the hope of the empty tomb. And so they hate us for daring to be so simple in our faith and to guard themselves against the attraction of the Holy Spirit who might want to draw them in. Doubt leads to misery. Look at the world around us. We've abandoned belief in God. Are we happier? Is this the age of Aquarius like we were promised if we could just get God out? Now that the church is driven out of the public life and the academy, is there greater peace and harmony than ever before? No. Now we're killing ourselves in record numbers. Young men are going to schools and opening fire on little children to flout their despair before the whole world. When doubt becomes not just a struggle to get through, but a way of life, it undermines everything worth living for. Until you can accept what Jesus has done as an act of your will, like Thomas, you will have no peace. It's easy to be a skeptic in a crowd or online when everybody seems so sure of themselves. 
But you know, it's interesting when skeptics are not joking about the idiocy of people who believe, they're joking about their own depression and how meaningless their own life is. There's a connection to that. And that may not be a perfect argument for the truth of the resurrection, but it's not nothing that doubt leads to misery. Now I'm speaking about doubts in such a way that is probably raising some eyebrows. To be clear, I do not believe that the claims of Christianity are groundless. And I do not believe that it is wrong to become well-versed in the defense of the faith. However, in Matthew 12, 39, when the Pharisees and the scribes demanded a sign from Jesus to verify his claims, he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. He condemns them for not believing the truth, regardless of whether they had sufficient evidence or not. The only sign he gives them is the resurrection itself. And he cloaks that in shrouded language. Remember the sign of Jonah. It's not wrong to examine the evidence, but this is our second point today. The inferiority of evidence to faith. The inferiority of evidence. When the Lord finally appeared to Thomas eight days later, he offered him the opportunity to verify the resurrection personally. Do not disbelieve, he said, but believe. If this is what it's going to take, fine, here you go. He offered him exactly the kind of evidence he had demanded. I find it remarkable that Thomas did not avail himself of that opportunity. Instead, he responded in faith. He didn't put out his hands. He just said, my Lord and my God. There's a lesson in that. There are times where God will give us answers to questions. And this reveals something important. There are answers to our questions. Thomas claimed he would only believe if he could touch the scars of Jesus. That was possible. Jesus could have arrived at any moment and allowed him to do just that. But if he had done so, it would have been an inferior step of faith for Thomas. Even now, we look at his faith compared to the others as inferior, at least in that moment, to the other apostles. There are answers to all these questions we have. Look at the resurrection, for example. You have eyewitness testimony recorded in a contemporary manuscript that we have verified. The history of the church shows that we've been preaching the resurrection since the very beginning. It didn't just evolve over a couple hundred years like some people think. And how else do you explain the transformation of these people? Especially Thomas. This doubter ended up dying for Jesus. What happened? A group hallucination? I hardly think so. Were they just liars? If they were liars, would every single one of them die for their lie? I don't think so. Gary Habermas and other men have done wonderful work explaining the evidence for the resurrection because there are answers to these questions. The arguments for the existence of God are so numerous we could spend weeks going over them. The church has been pondering the big questions for centuries and we've arrived at sufficient conclusions. So don't let anybody ever tell you, no one in the church wants to ask the tough questions. Yes, we do. And yes, we have. The problem is we've come to answers and people don't really like that. But I will say this, although we have sufficient evidence, our culture has made a virtue of doubt. Americans and others in the West will not stand for insufficiently defended claims. And nowhere has this pressure been applied with greater force than to the church. The assaults against God and his Bible are merciless. A higher standard of proof is demanded from Christians than from anyone else. And we have risen to the challenge, as I just explained. But somewhere along the line, in our defense of the faith, our apologia, which means defense, it's where we get the word apologetics, somewhere along the line, we swallowed the world's starting premise. Believing something on the basis of faith alone is unacceptable. That's the world's position. 
And that claim ought to set off alarm bells in your heart because you are saved by faith alone. So to say that believing something by faith alone is insufficient raises some very serious problems for your salvation. Not only do we disagree with that statement, we absolutely reject that statement. And that might sound strange to you because that's the culture in which you live, but the Bible shows us where our culture is wrong. God places a higher value on faith that does not see sufficient evidence of its object. In Luke 7, a Roman centurion asked for Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus said, okay, I'll go to your house, I'll heal him. But the the old soldier said in verse 7 there, say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus did not rebuke this man for being gullible. He marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you not even in Israel have I found such faith. Luke 7, 9. Jesus commended faith that did not require proof. The exact opposite of what we have come to believe. Why is this the case? Because you are responsible to believe what is true regardless of whether or not it has been sufficiently proven to you. God will not relax his judgment on the final day because somebody was not exposed to the ontological argument for the existence of God. He will judge with unwavering wrath because the wages of sin is death whether or not you agree. Smirking at the heavens and shouting, prove it. That doesn't make you wise, it makes you a fool. This is why Jesus sent us out, not as skilled debaters of theology, but as proclaimers of the cross and the empty tomb. Paul could debate with anybody on the face of the earth, but he said, I determined to know nothing except Christ Jesus and him crucified. He said, I did not come with fanciful words of wisdom or or these big arguments that would have impressed these Greek people. He said, I just came preaching the simple gospel. Christian, if you can be argued into your faith, you can be argued out of your faith. One day, the proofs for the inerrancy of Scripture might seem overwhelming to you. But then the very next day, you might wake up and all you can see are the holes. 51% faith is not saving faith. And if you hang your hat on one single argument, say the latest writing of some Christian scientist or some archaeological discovery, you might find yourself one day without a leg to stand on. What if we discover something else that replaces that old archaeological discovery? Is your faith shipwrecked? It better not be. The more we rely on arguments and evidence above the supernatural power of God's living word, the more we're going to find ourselves tinkering with the scriptures, reevaluating doctrines, not because we had fresh light from the Holy Spirit, but because some heathen in a university said, that's unacceptable, you can't believe that anymore. Doubt always overflows its banks. It never stays in one place. Build your foundation on anything other than faith in God and his holy word, and you will build on a foundation made of sand. I love apologetics. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Throughout the centuries, the church has fielded attacks from the outside, from the Romans, from the Muslims, from every heretic who's ever come around. But our foundation is not built on those things. All these things can do is point back to what cannot be demonstrated in a laboratory, the saving death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. Jesus rebuked those who asked for signs. He preached in parables to obscure his message on purpose. Why? So that only those who sought God with a pure heart would find him. The salvation of the soul is a spiritual matter, not an intellectual one. God in his grace will provide evidence. 
And because his claims are true, there always will be good evidence. But as his disciples, we believe in the inferiority of evidence when it comes to matters of belief. And then there's the redemption of Thomas. It's a wonderful sight. Jesus said, here, put your your fingers in my scars. And he said, no. He only believed. And not only did he believe, but he went further than his brothers in making that great confession about Jesus. My Lord and my God. All of us have followed him in that example of faith since then. If Jesus Christ is risen, then Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God, very God. In that moment, it all came crashing down over Thomas. All his bitterness and his doubt melted away. He saw that not even death could stop Jesus. He knew that every word Jesus had ever said was true. Every promise he ever made he would keep. And that this was a man, more than a man, worthy of every breath and every ounce of strength he had left in his body. In John 20, 28, he ceased to be doubting Thomas, and he became, in truth, the Apostle Thomas, one of the twelve who led the church in Jerusalem, the missionary to the Indian Peninsula, and a faithful martyr for the name of the Lord his God. Do you see the freedom that came to Thomas's life when he was willing to let go and believe? This is our third and final point today, the liberty of faith. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. When you stop treating the Bible as a term paper that needs to be graded, when you stop giving yourselves airs as some great Christian intellectual, when you stop trying to impress people who hate God and his Bible, when you lift your eyes off of the iPhone screen and look into the radiant face of Jesus Christ, there, there is where true freedom is to be found. Try to prove yourself into being a man of faith. You'll never do it. You will spend the rest of your life digging in the dirt for one more scrap of evidence in order that someday I might finally have enough to really believe. Don't do that. Just believe and breathe in that first real breath of freedom outside of the tomb of the skeptics. I am firmly convinced it is never the evidence that keeps people out of heaven and it is never the evidence that keeps people in the fold. Thomas did not really need to see the scars of Jesus in order to believe. That's just what he had told himself in order to avoid the pain that he had undergone when Jesus was killed. Thomas had slept while Jesus prayed in the garden. He had fled when the soldiers came to arrest him. If he saw the crucifixion at all, it was from a distance. Imagine the pain and the shame of all that. He had barely been able to begin dealing with it all. And now he's faced with the story of Jesus risen from the dead. Could he risk opening up his heart to the possibility of more pain? If I believe that Jesus is risen, what if he hasn't? I'm going to get hurt all over again. Better to hide behind the mask of a skeptic in order to avoid facing the question. But when Jesus saw him face to face and offered him his hands, Thomas would not dishonor the Lord and his God with his own doubts. Knowing that Jesus was alive was enough to set him free. That's what makes the difference. The issues that keep people out of the kingdom are deeply personal, not intellectual. Maybe it's pain suffered at the hands of a Christian or even a pastor. And you think to yourself, I don't want anything to do with these people, so I'm not even going to consider what they've said. Maybe it's fear of accepting the truth of heaven and hell, because if I believe that Christians go to heaven and those who are not go to hell, that means that my friend, my sister, my wife, my mother died without Jesus. That means they're in hell and you just can't face that. So you cloak it in skepticism. Maybe there's just pride. 
You're unwilling to be seen as foolish before your peers or before your family. Those are the things that make a difference in people's hearts. You look at anybody who came to faith in Jesus, it was never some big intellectual exercise. William Lane Craig is a world-renowned apologist. He's debated at Oxford and Cambridge and everything else. He was saved because there was a girl in his high school class who showed up one day with a big smile on her face, tapped her on the back of the shoulder and said, why are you always so happy? And she said, it's Jesus. And so he goes home and reads a Bible. And while he reads it, he says that he just was overwhelmed with the love and the peace of God, not raised in a Christian family. And in that moment decided he was going to follow Jesus for the rest of his life. All the arguments came later. He was able to accept and articulate those arguments only because they're not his foundation. His foundation is Christ. This is why it is the job of apologetics to move the conversation beyond the intellectual hurdles so the evangelist can address the heart. Even if you were able to convince someone that abortion is wrong or that the New Testament is reliable or even that Jesus rose again, so what? The New Testament might be reliable, but does that make it God's word? Jesus may have risen from the dead, but why does that mean I ought to worship him? Thomas could have claimed, oh, he was hallucinating when I saw Jesus. Ah, oh, the apostles drugged me, and that's why it was like I saw Jesus. The human mind, assisted by the schemes of the devil, is capable of moving the goalpost as far back as necessary. You've got to aim for the heart. Blaise Pascal said, In faith there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. We ought to answer serious objections, but we aim for the heart. Open the conversations however you like, and then make a beeline for the cross. Proclaim the word that never returns void. And then let the Holy Spirit do his work. This is what I've always said when I've led mission teams out. Your job is to proclaim the gospel and let the Holy Spirit work it out. Call people to faith because that's where freedom is found. Faith is an act of the will. Choosing to believe what has been proclaimed. When you decide to believe in your heart and mind, you reach the end of the road to salvation. And some people need to take a few detours to have some questions answered. Some people have a long road because they're trying to answer all their questions, but the end is the same. And that road can be shortened if you will believe now. There must be a decision to believe in what has been reported to you about God and the risen Jesus through his word. And it is only once you have done so that the proofs begin to click in your mind. The scriptures come alive. All of a sudden, when you've believed, the teaching of Jesus becomes like honey in your mouth. And the Holy Spirit begins to change your very conscience within you. The whole Christian life is a testimony of the truth of the resurrection, but it is something that only the Christian can experience. You have been in the church before when someone preaches and the message is exactly what you needed for your situation. You've seen specific answers to prayer. You've had special experiences like dreams and miracles that you've seen. You've had someone come up with a word for the Lord for you that gives information that they had no business knowing, but God was speaking through them. Is that evidence not enough for us? I've seen the Lord perform healings in answer to my prayers. I did not heal nobody. Jesus healed them through my prayers. And I'll tell you that even with that Truth, if I let my mind become focused on some academic analysis of the gospel, my faith is never as strong. And all of a sudden, I'm letting somebody from some university or some group somewhere tell me that what I've experienced in accordance with the word of God is somehow not enough. 
because your faith is not to be in a set of proven propositions, but in the living, risen Jesus Christ himself. Simply choose to believe in him and you will be rewarded with more experiential evidence than you could ever hope for. Jesus told people, he said, come follow me. He said, I'm not going to give you a sign, but come follow me. That's what we call people to. Just believe. The mire of endless arguments can be a swamp from which a Christian is never able to extract their rightful joy. Paul spoke of people in 2 Timothy 3, 7, who were always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That ought not to be us. When will you finally have found enough evidence to consider yourself convinced? Some people wear themselves out watching videos and reading books and fighting online. And it all looks to me like a profound lack of faith. It will weaken your heart and ruin your evangelism. You start sharing the gospel with somebody and you feel the need to lay out a thousand proofs in front of them rather than just tell them the gospel. They might be ready to believe, but you weaken your testimony by putting all this other stuff in front of them. That makes them go, "Mm, if they feel the need to explain all this stuff, there must be a lot of stuff I haven't considered. When in reality, the fact that Jesus died for you and loves you and is willing to forgive you of your sins if you believe, that's it. It's that simple. If you as a Christian cannot accept the simple truth of the Bible without buttressing it with a thousand blogs and tidbits of information, what you need is not another seminar. What you need is a good hour or ten on your knees in the presence of God with no other book except your Bible. We need to be able to consider interesting questions, even doubts, but then release them in order to enter into the joy of the Lord and not give up what we know to be true for some issue that makes us not quite sure how it all works together. We know that it does work together. We might not quite know how. That's okay. We can move past that. When you come into the church building, there might be countless questions and even doubts running through your mind. You greet your friends. You sit down, but you still can't get it out of your head. When the opening prayer comes, what do you do? Ask the Lord to relieve the burden of your mind so that you can worship him. Then the songs begin, and all these songs are all about faith. I can't sing a song of faith if I don't feel it in my heart. Nonsense! Put those words in your mouth. And say, I will believe. And my soul can get in line (laughs) with what we know to be true. Then what happens when you do that? Joy begins to swell in your heart. You remember all that God has done for you. The hope of your eternity spent forever with Jesus grows in your mind. Now all of your doubts seem so pitiful compared to his glory. You don't need to have every question answered perfectly. You know the most important thing, that Jesus is alive and he's coming back for you someday. We'll work out the questions later. We're not going to let them jeopardize this. The trick is to learn to do this all the time, not just when you come to church. This is why you need that daily discipline of devotion and prayer. Because you have a tempting serpent who's whispering in your ear night and day. When you're walking in the Spirit, the world looks small and unimpressive. So don't spend time outside of the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fall prey to the fleshly arrogance of your mind. Consider today, Easter Sunday. Let's just take a minute now and meditate on the glory of the resurrection without having to entertain the obnoxious complaints of unbelievers. Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He died a sinless life and taught us how to live. He was betrayed by his own people and nailed to a cross, died, and was buried in a borrowed tomb. But then on the third day, 
soldiers are there in front of the tomb. There's that giant boulder blocking the entrance. They've set a guard to prevent the disciples from coming to steal the body. Sun comes up and the ground begins to shake. And the soldiers guarding it start to stumble and they fall down to the ground. And all of a sudden, an angel swoops down from heaven in brilliant light. And I'll bet that angel had the biggest celestial smile on his face that has ever happened before. And he rolled that big old stone out of the way and out comes Jesus, scars on his hands and feet, but alive and risen from the dead. He died to pay the penalty for your sins and he rose to give you new life. He ascended to heaven to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes and leads his church until the day when he will return in judgment to set all things right. He'll reign for a thousand years, put an end to Satan and his final rebellion, and then... The sky will be rolled up like a scroll and the earth will flee away before the new heaven and the new earth where we will live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's the gospel message without introducing a bunch of doubts into it. How glorious is that? That's a message that has changed the world. That's the message that gets me out of bed every morning. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has risen from the dead, you will be saved. My sins have no hold over me anymore because Jesus has already paid the death penalty for them. I live not at the cross, but out of the empty tomb in new abundant life by the Holy Spirit of God. That's the liberty of faith. (laughs) Those are my three points the misery of doubt, the inferiority of evidence, and the liberty of faith. That's going to be it for today, but I want to make one final appeal to you. Jesus said to Thomas at the end of the passage, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Peter spoke about this too in 1 Peter 1, 8-9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We have not seen the risen Lord. All we have is the testimony of the apostles, just like Thomas had. And we, like Thomas, are expected to believe based on that testimony alone. Each one of us has experienced God in various ways. And we're also super educated. I know that you have a working knowledge of most apologetics issues. But at the root of it, We have to have faith because we have not seen him. And the Bible says there is a special blessing upon us for believing without having seen him. I've spoken passionately today because I feel very strongly about this. We have become in the church encultured to the world of the skeptic and the doubter. I'm concerned that we have begun to believe the obvious lie that faith alone is insufficient for a thinking man. It has affected the way we speak the way we sing, and the way we preach. And I believe that it has made us into Christians with thin souls. I love to read old-fashioned Christian books. And by that, I mean books from the end of the 19th century to the beginning of the 20th century. Guys like A.W. Tozer, Martin Lloyd-Jones, men like that. It's always refreshing to read their books and listen to their sermons because they do not feel the need to prove every claim that they make as if they were speaking to a secular audience. They take the authority of the Bible as a given, It's so refreshing. I love somebody who can talk about the deity of Christ without hedging his bets or celebrate the resurrection without feeling the need to talk to me like I don't believe it. They just believed and they knew their people believed. 
While I know that the church, even back then, had its problems and its heresies, we have lost something from that old-time religion, and we've got to get it back. People today are sick of cold skepticism. They're looking for something to believe in. They're not interested in proofs and arguments, especially, might I add, in areas where science has no business sticking its nose. You work on describing salamanders and studying rocks. Don't come over here in the area of morality. Young people today are rioting in the streets in a search for meaning and faith. The generations are shifting. And the throne of the scientist who held sway over the last couple generations, his throne is being shaken from the bottom. Now, we have the gospel that can answer both the scientist and the social justice warrior. But if you tie yourself too tightly to any one of these groups, when they fall, you fall. And you'll be unable to reach the other. We cannot help anybody by becoming just like them. We must reclaim our separation and distinction as Christians. How do we do that? Brothers and sisters, can we not just be Christians? Can we not just believe the Bible because it's God's word? Would it not be refreshing to speak of angels without cringing? <laughs> or to refer to Jesus as God without having to look over your shoulder and make sure nobody's going to jump all over you? If you want to restore joy and vitality to your faith, and if you want to reach a desperate generation with the hope of the risen Jesus, we don't need a facelift as a church. Well, here's what they're into. Let's do that. That doesn't work because they see it for what it is. People know when they're being advertised to. And it's not a reinterpretation of the Bible. That's not what we need either. Well, people don't believe in Jesus, so let's change the Bible to match what they believe. Then they're kind of already Christians. No, that doesn't work either. People can see that coming too. What we need is a little old-time religion that people say, do you believe in God? Yes, I do. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. You believe everything the Bible tells you? Yes, I do. <laughs> Isn't that easier? Isn't that simpler? Isn't that what we believe anyway? Why are we afraid to say it out loud? You know this is true. You may not always be able to explain how you know, but you know. Come on, you're a Christian. You've been in the church. You've been in those meetings. You've prayed. You've been on those trips. You've read your Bible. You know this is true. Don't let somebody come in and tell you that what you have found to be true through experiential faith is somehow insufficient. That's a tactic of the devil, you guys. When somebody comes in and says, what you have experienced at the hands of God does not count. You have to prove it my way. Excuse me? <laughs> Try to tell that to the apostle Peter. Oh, you may have walked on water, Peter, but that doesn't prove anything. It absolutely does. Well, I wasn't there to see it. Doesn't matter. I was, and so I believe it. Same thing with me, and same thing with you. You know Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Embrace that mysterious certainty. It's wonderful, and it's so freeing. It's the work of the Holy Spirit within you. And people will say, well, if you just say, I believe it because the Bible tells me so, that's off-putting to people. No, it's not, you guys. It's refreshing. You just believe that? Yes, I do. And that's what's changed my life. People go, all right, I want that. And you make it so simple. Here's something I didn't even plan to say. You make it simple. If you make coming to faith this whole intellectual exercise, and you've got to believe these 10,000 special books that have been written in order to prove everything the Bible says, you're going to make people feel like I'm not smart enough to be a Christian. You can push people away that way instead of just proclaiming the simple truth of the gospel. People are tired of everybody shouting, prove it for everything they know to be true. I love my wife. Prove it. I love my kids. Prove it. I believe in God. Prove it. People are sick of that. They're looking for people who can just say, I believe it because it's true. 
Are you saying you have no evidence? No, I have tons of evidence, but I believe because of what God said. As the old hymn says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. More than that, Jesus didn't just die for us. Christ is risen. This is the greatest news I could ever give you. Because he has risen, he has opened up the door of salvation for all who believe. Thomas had a hard time believing at first, but when he finally did, it set his whole life at liberty. Don't try to be too clever and dilute your experience with God by dissecting him in a laboratory. Receive what he has done through faith and live through that same faith every day. Get a little of that old-time religion into your life. Be content to be a Christian. And understand that that's going to make you really weird to the world. And say, fine, I found God. You're never going to shake my faith. When you believe the Lord and just believe what he said, the power of the risen Jesus will spread through your life in glorious liberty that you cannot find anywhere else.